News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, where you live shouldn't determine what kind of care you get if you're diagnosed with an illness like cancer. Shouldn't, but it does. Living close to a cancer care center or an urban center with newer medical developments, I mean, all of that does make a difference. So for World Cancer Day this year, the theme is closing that care gap and promoting medical equity. So how is that going to be done? Well, joining us now to talk more about it is Dr. Craig Earle, CEO of the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer. Dr. Earle, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. Okay, let's talk about this. What kind of medical inequity do we see when it comes to getting treatment for cancer? Well, you know, we see in uh, actually all throughout healthcare, whenever new interventions are brought into uh, the healthcare system, they can sometimes actually or often actually worsen disparities in the sense that it'll tend to be educated, wealthy, urban people who take them up uh, and access them uh, first. So even though everyone may benefit, um, you can actually see the gaps widen. And so, you know, some of the approaches to take to this are to try to what, what we call building equity by design into um, new interventions. Uh, For example, one of the uh, big pushes right now is to start uh, lung cancer screening, and programs are just starting to get up and running. And, for example, in Saskatchewan, um, they're planning to start their lung cancer screening program in the north of the province. It's not necessarily the easiest place to start a new program. You'd start it in Regina, but the need is greater uh, in the north, higher smoking rates, higher lung cancer rates. So by serving the underserved first, it's a way to approach um, dealing with inequities. Oh, that's really interesting. And also, I guess the pandemic had an impact on this too, right? Because we saw, you know, like, let's say pharmacists being able to do more here. Yeah, uh, same thing in Ontario, which is where uh, I practice, so uh, affecting the scope of of practice. One example, I think, where the pandemic made us do some things that can actually benefit the healthcare system going forward, um, we were working with paramedic groups uh, prior to the pandemic uh, to have trained paramedics be able to deal with uh, patients and provide palliative care in their home as opposed to always having to transfer them to hospital. And what we had been finding was that about 50% of the time, the paramedics were able to deal with the issue, treat the the patient, and keep them in their home. And so, of course, when the pandemic struck, the value of this multiplied uh, many times because now vulnerable patients weren't having to be brought to the hospital where potentially they could be exposed to uh, COVID. But also, importantly, um, it freed up the emergency departments and the, the hospitals and, uh, you know, to be able to deal with, with other patients. So this is something that, uh, for example, in BC was expanded when the, the pandemic struck and is an example of the type of thing uh, where we need to keep the momentum going and uh, keep expanding. It sounds like we're talking about more of a, almost like a decentralization when it comes to treatment. And I guess that works provided everybody has the information, right? Right. Uh, So information and the uh, providers who are able to do it. So 
Um, for example, uh, another area where BC is actually very much a leader is in training um, family physicians to become what are called general practitioners in oncology and able to um, supervise chemotherapy in less urban settings, be able to do cancer follow-up, uh, et cetera, so that patients don't have to travel. Um, and it's a way of, uh, you know, the sort of networked care uh, can definitely help with uh, inequities in the form of uh, urban-rural types of divides. That makes so much more sense, though, doesn't it, Dr. Earl? Because people have that connection. Perhaps they have that relationship with their family doctor, and then maybe not the case with an oncologist or waiting for a referral. Yeah, there can be many benefits. Um, Nova Scotia is also uh, setting up a a more networked uh, approach to their cancer system. And in particular for Indigenous patients, um, not having to travel Um, being able to, in all likelihood, closer to home, have more culturally appropriate care, perhaps being able to be cared for uh, in their own language, uh, etc. And this works for, I guess, anybody in a a smaller community, not living next to a major or near a major kind of hospital centre. Right. Um, You know, one of the other approaches that, uh, you know, a little bit spurred by the pandemic in in trying to deal with some of the uh, backlogs in cancer care that have come um, several of the the provinces, BC, Ontario, etc., are investing in digital navigation. So as we know, when the pandemic struck, healthcare, you know, became virtual overnight. And there are, uh, you know, video visits and telephone visits and There are pros and cons to this, but it has led to things like many hospitals now having a virtual option for their emergency department. And so instead of waiting in the ER, they're able to have a a virtual visit. But similarly, investing in uh, electronic referrals, consultations, and centralized wait lists so that you're not necessarily at the mercy of waiting uh, for, you know, when's the availability for your local surgeon that you've been referred to, um, if you're able to identify that the next available actually is an hour's drive away, well, maybe that's worth it and and, uh, better. So um, a a way to deal with these sorts of issues. Right. So Dr. Earl, this all sounds great. And I know many people would love to see this happen, but how close are we to making these things a reality? So some of them are becoming a reality. Um, You know, just yesterday I got notification uh, in my in my clinical part of my job uh, about uh, one of these systems being set up uh, within Toronto. So uh, it's definitely coming in, in BC. There's something called RACE, which is rapid access to consultative expertise. Um, so, you know, these things are rolling out and right. um, definitely coming. Where can we help or how can we help? Hmm. Well, you know, there's, uh, I think, as I say, there's lots of good stuff happening and uh, we need to keep momentum. I mean, this is World Cancer Day is really an awareness day. Uh, there's so many other pressing things going on in healthcare: the opioid crisis, mental health, uh, workforce shortages, etc. Uh, it's keeping uh, a bit of a focus and recognition of the importance of uh, of cancer, and uh, that there's still uh, still challenges to to be faced. Uh, continuing the momentum on some of these innovations that are are coming and uh, uh, keeping support uh, going in that way. All right. Well, then we will. Dr. Earl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A pleasure. 
This is Mornings with Simi. While we're on the topic of healthcare this morning, I do have another great initiative to tell you all about. And this time it's about helping kids with rare diseases. Because here's a stat for you. Did you know that one in every three hospital beds at BC Children's Hospital is occupied by a child with a rare disease? So there's new in, there's this new initiative being launched to try and provide more and better medical answers for those children. Let's learn more about it, shall we? Dr. Stuart Turvey is with us, the Canada Research Chair in Pediatric Precision Health and lead of the Precision Health Initiative. Good morning, Dr. Turvey. Uh, Good morning, Simi. What is this initiative all about? Uh, This initiative is about helping children. So so as you said, there are children in our hospital who have rare diseases, maybe diseases that actually haven't been seen or or diagnosed before. And so those those children need to get answers. And so through the Precision Health Initiative, we can use new cutting-edge technology to actually understand their genetic makeup, and the genes and proteins in their body and start to make some of these diagnoses that can transform the course for that child and for their family. Are these, is this kind of work being done anywhere else or is this something that BC Children's Hospital really wants to focus on? This is really important for us at BC Children's Hospital because these rare diseases are, are, are a big issue. Um, Obviously, those problems are faced by other children's hospitals around the world. And and one of the things we do is actually networking. So when we find a child with a new or rare disease in in BC, we're not going it alone. We're partnering with other experts around the world to make sure that we can give the best possible treatment uh, for that child and the best possible advice for their family. So how do we do this? How do we help out? Well, so... uh, who's helping out with this is, is, is the remarkable mining community. So the, the mining for miracles uh, group, which has been raising money for decades for BC children's hospital, they're coming together to, to help uh, support us access this amazing new technology that allows us to understand all the DNA that makes up a child or, or, or the, the proteins and other molecules. Right. So how do you envision this unfolding then, Dr. Turvey? You've got to raise money and then it takes time to do the research. Like, are we talking about a long-term impact here? Yeah, but we're ready to go today. And, and that's what's so amazing about Mining for Miracles. Is they've come and supported important initiatives at BC Children's Hospital for decades. And so they're ready to, to partner with us. And so this is a research project where we'll be supporting physicians, so pediatricians, at BC Children's Hospital who have patients that they think will benefit from this new technology, we're able to streamline that process to, to, um, to, to get the work done, to understand what, what's going, and, and then provide that feedback to the, to the pediatrician so that they can work with the families to, to move forward on diagnosis and treatment. I understand that if this initiative is, it works as planned, you think it could solve up to 25% or more of these mystery cases? Is that right? Yeah, and we're building on um, success. So there's obviously healthcare is advancing over over time, and we've been pushing the line forward in terms of the the children with these rare diseases. Something like 50% are being diagnosed now with the current technology. We're looking to push that line forward and capture more of those because 50% is great, but it still leaves one in two of these, these children and families without, without an answer. All right. Where can we find out more? 
Uh, so, so we're easy to find. Uh, BC Children's Hospital Research Institute, Precision, Precision Health, and then Mining for Miracles, which is really nicely linked through the BC Children's Hospital Foundation website. Oh, sounds like a, a wonderful idea. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. There are 150,000 job openings in BC, and that number is only expected to get bigger in the years ahead as more and more people head for retirement. So do we have a plan for dealing with this? How are we going to fix this? Well, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade does have a plan. Their president and CEO, Bridget Anderson, joins us now to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. This is a huge number, Bridget. Where are all these jobs? Well, you know, if we could back up a little bit, Simi, I think what we've been hearing from our members for a regular amount of time is that they're dealing with an acute labour problem. And we are hearing it across every sector and every industry, and it is costing businesses money. So when we look at the job openings, you mentioned 150,000 right now, but the BC government is forecasting that there will be 1 million job openings in the next decade. So we've got a big problem. We've got a a labor shortage and we have got to be able to find ways to solve it. So over the last six months or so, we have conducted research. We've talked to many of our members and we put forward a plan that contains 65 recommendations based on sort of three buckets, if you will. One is some immediate steps that could be taken to maximize labor force participation. One, another to ensure that we have the digital skills that we need for today and tomorrow. And the third one is a bit more uh, future focused, if you will. And it really ensures that we're aligning industry needs with that is what's happening in the post-secondary space. So it's a very comprehensive plan to be able to solve what is a really complex problem. Okay, let's start with the first bucket then. What can we be doing right now? There's a number of things that can be done immediately that would start to address the acute challenges we're seeing. And when I'm talking about maximizing labor force, so things like making uh, the immigration process faster recognition of foreign credentials, removing registration for out-of-province healthcare workers, and new approaches to ensure that we're getting underrepresented workers in the f- workforce faster. You know, p- perhaps an office for Indigenous employment. Indigenous workers are one of the fastest-growing communities, and they are underrepresented in the workforce. So how can we maximize their participation? Uh, other underrepresented groups as well. So incentives for employers to really work with those who are underrepresented in the workforce. And more experiential learning. A lot of post-secondary institutions offer things like co-ops and internships, but a lot don't. And so we really need industry and the post-secondary system to work together to ensure that there are more opportunities like that to get people into the workforce faster. Right. Okay. So, and right now, though, it's, it's, I think every employer in every industry will tell you they've probably got a lot of jobs that are going vacant. Well, there's a global uh, competition for talent. There's no question, and especially with the hybrid or remote working that is happening. So we have to, as industry, have to work with government to be able to ensure that we're maximizing labor force participation. And we know that immigration is a piece of that, but we have to make the the process much smoother and much faster. We've heard all of the stories. Simi, you've had lots of uh, guests on your radio station that talk about just how difficult it is to come to Canada and they don't get their credentials uh, recognized for some time, for too long. So how can how can government provide policies that make that a lot smoother and a lot faster? 
Okay. And the one about like aligning post-secondary education or even like, you know, high school with what work, what the workers, what the workplace needs, that seems like an argument, Bridget, we've been having for a very long time. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, part of the research and the discussions we had included a lot of young leaders because they're the ones closest to that system. And we heard from them that there was a number of things that could be done, offering them more practical skills, hands-on skills while they're going through post-secondary. But even before that, If you think about being in high school, lots of kids maybe don't know what they want to do, but there are a fair amount of kids that have decided by grade 10 or 11, they want to be a nurse or they want to go in a certain direction. And so how can we have laddering programs in high school that accelerate their ability to get into the workforce faster? And then using data, data is a really important tool here, using data to inform those decisions by post-secondary institutions to offer the kind of programs that we can see our gaps in the labor market. So, you know, ensuring that that is a data first approach and making sure that we're building the skills for today and the ones that we need in the future. But what can businesses do differently here? Hiring is a is a challenging process. And I feel like a lot of a company's time and effort is is spent like trying to find people and hire people. You know, businesses have had a rough time, and I've talked to you about it for uh, a number of months now. Businesses are coming out of the pandemic still. A lot of them are facing increased debt, and there's the global competition for talent in a city that's pretty unaffordable. So things like um, additional skilling or reskilling of talent, you know, that really becomes a partnership between the employer and the employee. So this is where digital skills really come to play. And so one of the recommendations we're making is to create a digital skills index that really ranks workplace digital skills, but incentives for some of the smaller businesses to ensure that they have a digital first approach and that incentives for employees to upskill or to additionally skill themselves through something like micro-credentials, which are becoming very popular and a very accessible way to get additional skills in your tool belt very quickly. Boy, it just sounds like we all have a lot of work to do because when you talk about these numbers, at what's I think your report said seven hundred thousand jobs in the next ten years. Uh, it's one million job openings in the next ten years, but we've got seven hundred thousand people retiring over that same right. period of time. So even with immigration, there's going to be gaps. And you know, I should say that we have shared this report with government, and government is working on their own future ready skills plan that we should see in the next short while. So this is top of mind for government. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to come up with these recommendations is so that industry is working with government to solve Mm -hmm. this problem. Bridget, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're over our quota. It's regulated by the government and by the DFO. But the problem is, is what they don't understand is millions of people, look at this milk running away, because it's the end of the month, I dumped 30,000 liters of milk, and it breaks my heart. Dumping thousands of liters of milk? This viral video has sparked quite the discussion all over the country. It's about our dairy farming system, our supply management system, about the price of milk, I mean, you name it. But as always, this video made us wonder, what is really going on here? What is the story behind this story? We wanted to get some more perspective on that. So joining us now is Mike Bonmassa, who's an associate professor of food, agriculture, and resource economics at the University of Guelph. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me. Now, can you help us put this into perspective? Like, what is really going on here with this video? 
Well, uh, let's let's start with the fact that he's dumping milk. It's unfortunate. Everyone hates to see dumping milk, but I think it's important to understand what's going on here. We have a system in Canada where uh, farmers are allocated quota for production, um, and they produce to that, and in return they get a, a price that is guaranteed to cover their cost of production and is also, I think, as importantly and what is often ignored, also provides a stable and predictable price for a perishable commodity. So this individual farmer has produced more uh, than his quota, and in normal circumstances, you are allowed to ship over quota. You get a buffer, you can ship over quota and then make it up uh, in, in future days because it's, you know, this is a biological process. It's not always easy to predict exactly how much your herd is going to produce. Uh, but eventually, you are penalized for shipping over quota. And that means you get paid less or not at all. You have to pay the trucking. And if there is not processing capacity, you might get asked to uh, to dump it. It's not clear in this individual situation if he was asked to dump it or if he chose to dump it because he didn't want to incur the costs uh, of, of shipping over quota. That's not clear here. But, uh, but what is clear is this is not a regular everyday occurrence. And most farmers do a good job of managing to their production level. That's what I've heard from some dairy farmers here being like, if this person is dumping milk, it's because they didn't manage their own supply properly. Would you say that? Yeah, I think, I think, that that's, I think that's accurate, right? We, we know what we're allowed to produce and, and we manage both the stage of lactation of our cows and how many cows we're milking to produce to that number. And, you know, often people will produce just a little bit higher and accept the penalty just in order to make sure that they make all of their uh, quota. And occasionally they have these things called incentive days where demand is higher. Uh, and so the buyers of milk say, oh, we'll accept a little bit more above your quota and people like to take advantage of that. But in this case, it looks like we have someone who's gone extremely beyond uh, that sort of buffer and, and, and it's caused some problems. So maybe you could explain to people then, Mike, too, about the supply management system. Do you think is do we understand it properly or do you think there's a lot of misconceptions? Well, I think there are a lot of misconceptions around supply management. And I think there are people who make arguments for and against it uh, on both sides uh, uh, without actually sitting down and understanding it well. We do have a system where farmers have quota. Uh, there is a cost of production formula that is calculated. I think there's been some critique of that, that it hasn't been as transparent or as clear to understand as possible. And that that provides the amount that uh, that producers are paid for, for that milk. We have a perishable product, so we know that uh, uh, we can't store it on the farm for a long time. We can't store it at the dairy for a long time. So, so quota also sort of uh, helps us to come up with a predictable supply. One thing I'd like to highlight is, and I was just looking, looking on social media as well, dumping milk is not a unique situation to the Canadian system. I just saw, frankly, on social media this morning, uh, a dairy farmer in the U.S. complaining about having to, uh, to, to dump 60,000 gallons of milk because the, the dairy that they were selling to didn't have demand for that milk, didn't have capacity to store it, and so wouldn't buy it from the farmer. So 
this is not a unique situation for supply management. And in fact, I'd argue because supply management coordinates all sales, we may actually have less fewer incidents of dumping because we can re-divert milk to a different processor if one processor is, is at capacity. Right. Do you think, though, this has prompted a needed discussion about the system, help people understand it better? Well, I, th- I think I think there's a couple of a couple of points. I think that there there is an ongoing and should be a, a, a renewed discussion about whether this is a structure that works for everyone and what tweaks we might make to it. I think though that that should be done in a in a rational way where we do you know good analysis, take a look at it rather than sort of thirty second viral videos so yes there is work, there is value in having a discussion of if if there should be evolution to the system whether this works what it means for consumers but i think we need to do it in a in a in a well thought out and rational way to make sure we don't make irrational decisions i, I really don't want to see us go ready fire aim uh, and making changes that as, as a knee-jerk reaction to something like this well mike thank you so much for your time this morning Thank you for having me. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. You've heard in the news about the new BC Liberal plan that they have announced called a system of care. And this is their one and a half billion dollar plan to expand access to addiction treatment beds, to eliminate user fees at not-for-profit facilities and more. But essentially, it's a way to deal with the overdose crisis and to help people with mental health issues and addiction problems in our province. And it's there's a lot in this plan, actually, to unpack. We're also wondering, look, where did they get all these ideas from? What kind of research went into it? So we thought, let's break that down this morning. So joining us now is Dr. Julian Summers, who's a distinguished professor of health sciences at Simon Fraser University and has done a lot of research in this area. Dr. Summers, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Great to be with you. Have you had a chance to kind of review what is in this plan? I know a lot of it kind of coincides with some of your work, doesn't it? It coincides with with work that I've been a part of with colleagues and and with bigger picture plans that have proven to be the most successful in other jurisdictions as well. What do you think is most significant in here? What will make the difference? I think two things. One is begin with the end in sight. And the end that we all need to be aiming for, for everyone that we're concerned about, is the opportunity for experiencing stable life in a community setting and the prospect for uh, wellness, uh, long-term wellness. That, that's, that's, that's one. The, the, the second is that it distributes the, the um, responsibilities for making a difference into the communities where people are first experiencing problems and where typically in our current system, they soon leave and begin long, like protracted processes of migration and wind up in urban centers where they continue to be neglected. The heavy focus on this plan is on treatment, would you say? No, I'd say actually the, 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 probably the biggest focus is prevention. But um, treatment is necessarily there because we have such a, a backlog such an accumulated burden of responsibilities to citizens who have uh, been uh, badly treated by our, by our existing systems. So we absolutely need a focus on treatment so that we can essentially address the, uh, those accumulated harms in people's lives. But, but the, 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 the vision that's described is one that would um, then produce 
the best way of preventing problems from arising because the resources are so broadly distributed in communities. As people are first experiencing um, evidence of risk, evidence of harms, they will have the opportunity to be supported before things get worse. So how do we identify those people who are first showing evidence of risk or harm? Well, I, you know, if, if we were to look out our windows today, we'd say, okay, is, is someone, is someone uh, apparently struggling with an addiction, with untreated mental illness, sleeping rough on any one of our sidewalks, um, and, and for, for an extended period of time? So we would start there. Um, and we can, and of course, if we started there, we would have our work cut out for us for months, possibly even a, a, a year, if we implemented what it's uh, services that have been shown to have an impact. So that would be that would be an immediate focus. But subsequent to that, as uh, we would we would identify problems the way that we are currently, um, but at a lesser level of risk. Anything from school officials, family members, individuals themselves, often presenting for for help when there is a, a caring and credible-looking place to present to, we don't have that. So it's, uh, it's a matter of um, um, providing services that uh, have been shown to be effective elsewhere, uh, catching up with the accumulated problems caused by neglect, and um, then ensuring that those services remain in place in, in, in communities um, so that they're capable of handling the, the ongoing. It, it's, it's a perennial problem. There are going to be problems relating to substance use in our population. It's a matter of how many and at what level of severity. One of the things that has really stuck out, I think, in this particular plan is the addition of involuntary treatment, which is something that has been talked about in the past, but most political parties have said, I don't think we're actually going to go there. What do you think about that? Well, if anyone in the NDP is saying, oh, we don't want to go there, too late. You're already there. You've overseen more than a doubling of the rates of involuntary hospitalizations in B.C., for people whose primary reason for being in hospital is a substance use disorder. You have also, and this is the current government, you have also overseen a massive increase in the percentage of people who are locked up in BC who were diagnosed with substance use disorders before they were incarcerated. And here I'm referring to people who are sentenced for crimes, as well as people who are simply remanded, often for their own safety or the safety of the community. So involuntary forms of intervention are already on the uptick big time. And these are interventions that actually don't result in any permanent change because all they do is take someone, again, involuntarily off the street and into a setting where at most they will be stabilized, right? Prisons are not considered therapeutic settings. So involuntary intervening is already alive and well. People are dying involuntarily. So we can't afford to make that particular issue a, a, a big football here. Um, we, we, are, we are forcing people into positions that are against their interests all the time. What's included in this plan is um, mandated treatment. And the more we are offering voluntary treatment, the more we are preventing problems, the less we will need to have that. But, but involuntary treatment in a broader context of effective, compassionate care around the province is a vast improvement over involuntarily locking people up in prison overnight and then releasing them to the streets the next day. Okay, how do you envision that working then? As you say, all the pieces have to be in there, but under what circumstances would you foresee somebody needing involuntary treatment? Um, I, I would see, for instance, uh, I was speaking recently with a colleague who works in a heroin-assisted treatment program in Switzerland. 
and we were talking about this very issue. And he said, well, we have we have we, we don't have the kind of uh, unmet need in our visible in our communities that you have here in, in Vancouver or in other places. But if someone was to be out in the streets, let's say uh, uh, naked, using drugs, having uh, some kind of a, a, a what seems like a fit, but associated with their with their um, psychological symptoms, they would be immediately intervened with by police. They would be taken to a stabilization unit. Following the stabilization unit, they would not under any circumstances be discharged back to the streets. They would be um, uh, guided to some form of, of, of supported living that meets with, with um, their agreement. And th- th- so that's the process that, that we would envision here as well. We have to first get to the point where we don't have this, this massive volume of people living in crisis. So, so that would be the first step in, in my view. I'm, I'm, uh, um, I'm, I, I'm not speaking for, for Mr. Falcon or the rest of his team here, but in my, in my view, um, it, it simply makes the most logical sense to implement services first that would address the people who are currently at greatest risk while, the, while other components of the system are, are, being, are being implemented concurrently. Right. It's tricky, though, the way you laid it out there. Some form of supportive you know, housing and treatment that this person agreed with. Well, that, that could be any number of things. They may not agree with any of this, any kind of treatment. Yeah. So people are more likely to agree with things if they are closely aligned with their interests. And most people want the opportunity to, to resume life in a, in a decent, safe, clean community setting. In our research with um, thousands now of people living in despair, about 80% on our first, the first time we interview them, 80% say that resuming full-time work or paid work is, is one of their priorities. And uh, about two-thirds of them have worked continuously full-time for at least one year in the past. They have it within their skill set. They want to do it more. They're not old people. They're on average in their 30s. 25% have kids under age 18. This is across a, a wide range of, of, of studies. And those are powerful, that's a powerful source of motivation for people to move forward. So as we get to know people in the context of stabilization, start to talk to them about, well, here's where you have been living, but where's the community where, where, you, where you grew up or where you may have roots and attachments? What are some of the other things in your life that, that, w- that, that would motivate you to move forward and to, 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 to further cultivate your own well-being? We, we, it, we, when we approach people with this kind of a frame, um, they, they, they respond positively. And, and the likelihood of people, you know, saying, well, no, I don't want anything from you is actually about zero. When we've had the opportunity experimentally to provide people with options from the street, mm-hmm. no one says get lost, not one person. So as long as we're responding to what people want, and everyone wants those things that I'd mentioned, or, or you know, at least decent housing, stability, respect, to be treated with dignity, not only by care providers, but, but by one's neighbors and in one's settings. So that's the vision. Uh, that's what I meant by begin with the end in sight. Yes, right. of course, we have to save people. We have to rescue them. But, but once we've rescued them, we need to immediately be able to assure them that we know they deserve better. We can't fill in all the blanks. We can't tell them what better is for them, but we can make that possible and give them choices. It's been shown to work. Mm-hmm. It's been shown also to cost the same as leaving them where they are. Well, So there's really no reason to wait. Well, Dr. Summers, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Fantastic. Thanks, Amy. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard of STEAM learning? That is science, technology, engineering, the arts and mathematics. Focusing on that in kids 12 to 18 years old is one of the ways in which we try and prepare those kids for the jobs of the future, something we were talking about earlier today. But there's also an effort to make sure kids of all backgrounds have access to this kind of learning. And that is where our next guest comes in. Anthony Ogundale is the founder of Ethos Lab and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, and thank you, thank you so much for having me. First of all, tell me about Ethos Lab. What is that? Well, Ethos Lab is an organization with the mission of empowering youth to transform community and shift the culture of innovation. And we do this by providing access to science, technology, engineering, art, and math in culturally relevant ways. So we like to contextualize STEAM for young people um, and give them the hands-on opportunities to use different tools, like 3D printers um, and, um, you know, 3D modeling software, specifically in emerging technologies to help build leaders of the future. This sounds like so much fun. If I were a kid, this sounds like a lot of fun. So how do you make sure that kids all have access to this, no matter kind of which school they go to? Yeah, well, we just launched and have um, our central space in Mount Pleasant last year. So it is open to all young people. Um, But we design all of our programming centering the humanity of the Black experience. And what that means is we create a space where Black youth are respected, reflected, and protected. And what we have found is that that creates an environment that is inclusive for all. Um, Because we are really dedicated to ensuring that there is representation in these areas of STEAM, which we know in the workforce isn't the case. That's the thing, right? Kids need to see themselves in those jobs and with those possibilities, don't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we have instructors um, that are diverse, uh, particularly black leaders. Um, We have women um, and we have people from, again, many different gender backgrounds uh, participating in our programming um, and leading our programming. Um, And so we think it's important that all young people have access to um, black leadership in these spaces to be able to to, to be able to humanize the experience um, that Black youth have in these types of spaces. Antonio, what is it like for these kids when they come in here and they, and they start to do this and they're in this program? What kind of changes do you see? Yeah, well, it's been really, really interesting because what we're trying to do is, again, make it accessible to young people who have not necessarily seen themselves in STEM fields. And so that's where the arts come in. Um, and so what we're seeing is that young people are growing in confidence Um, They're building um, different, again, technical skills and starting to use them on their spare time. And more than anything else, a sense of belonging, um, that this is something that they can do, um, that they may have not have felt uh, that they could do, and, and that they just have a community of friends and people that are there for them. To just support them on their academic journey. Somebody they can just actually talk about it with, right? And compare notes with. Absolutely. From peers to um, other adults. So, I mean, we get questions all the time on, you know, what should I be doing for university? Or maybe there's this program or um, grant that I need to apply for or scholarship for school to, um, can you just help me out with my math homework? Right. Basics. That was that would have been me asking that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned using emerging technology. What does that mean? Yeah, emerging technology is a space um, where um, what we're calling it now is, is Web3. So that's looking at areas of virtual reality, augmented reality, 
mixed reality, um, 3D modeling, um, and really leveraging the tools of design thinking um, to be able to bring ideas to the forefront. So um, we're really trying to have young people uh, transfer or really see how creativity is really a form of innovation and being able to change the world that they see around them. So those are the spaces of emerging technology, and Vancouver is the best place um, for this. Why is that? Um, there's a really large ecosystem of people that are in emerging technology here. Um, you know, our film industry has really shown that like, virtual uh, effects and digital media um, is such a core part of our industry um, here in Vancouver. And so it just makes sense to be able to tap into those resources to be able to, uh, again, empower and build the skills uh, for young people to be able to see the opportunities in the workforce in the future. I mean, they're already playing roadblocks. Um, and right. building worlds in Minecraft, right? So how do we translate that for them to begin to think about, oh, well, there might actually be um, some jobs or opportunities in this space, but we really are focused on getting them into post-secondary education be- to begin to ladder into those spaces. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So how do you measure success here? Is it that kids are making kind of life decisions based on what they're experiencing in this program? Yeah, well, we measure success in a number of different ways. And again, we're an early organization. So one is just the them having fun. Are they actually growing and enjoying themselves? So often after our programming, we just try and find different ways of improving um, the experience that young people are have. Um, but over the trajectory of our of our organization is about how many are actually choosing STEAM as a field um, and actually how many are cho- not choosing STEAM as a field. Um, because what we're seeing is that young people that don't necessarily see themselves in these spaces aren't actually making the decision. Um, they're either being streamed or actually don't see it as an opportunity at all. Um, so we want to just arm them with as much opportunity um, and, and measure the amount of experiences and exposure that they're having to be able to um, see how we might be able to influence and support them in, uh, again, getting into post-secondary. Right. And what do you mean when you say they're being streamed? Does that mean that they just, they don't, they're already on a different track and they don't see the other opportunities? Yeah, well, what we know, um, and based on research, is that uh, racialized communities and even uh, racialized communities to, again, gendered experiences, is that some opportunities um, are, um, identified as kind of these are things that boys do or these are things right. that girls do, right? And so um, whether it be diving into the sciences of math or engineering, we are seeing that a lot of uh, STEM programs are being disproportionately attended by by males, right? And so that's why you have those really gender-focused and as well as racialized-focused, uh, in particular, black-focused programs, um, because uh, black youth are not necessarily um, being identified as you know, hey, maybe the engineering or sciences are for you. They're maybe being pushed more into the humanities and social sciences to, um, hey, why don't you just play basketball? But what I'd I'd argue is that all young people are complex. I I know I'm sure you are and and myself, that you can actually be interested in the music, in the arts, um, and in sports, but also be really excited to build things. Um, And so engineering is very much a possibility, and that's just not being communicated to to girls and, and, and black youth in that way. Well, it's nice that you called me young, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, it's sad that kids will take themselves out of the equation. That, that seems yeah. to what happens sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. But, but I, I think they don't even know, right? Like we have that, um, 
you know, as a young person, I mean, even myself, or even as you hear it, math is hard. Like we just accept that that was a horrible math test or math is difficult. Uh, when in actuality, it might be just the way that they're learning it in school. Maybe they're not having access to different ways of learning this material. Um, and so just even those little inklings or ideas um, that something is too difficult or that STEM is for difficult, challenged, gifted, enriched, it starts to make young people who who might feel like, oh, I'm not good at math, so I can't necessarily go into those fields or engineering it seems really, really difficult. That's for the, the gifted and rich kids. Like, I can't do that. Um, I think every young person has a sense of curiosity, an idea, but there's like a fear of being able to go after what you want and making sure that you have the right support to be able to push you to be able to, um, to, to, be able to achieve. So that's what we try and do at Ethos Lab is, is really, again, expose them to a lot of different opportunities that they may not be exposed to and encourage them to to just go for it. Antonio, where can we find out more? How can we help? Yeah, well, it's really exciting. Um, We are actually uh, starting um, our our Black Futures Month um, fundraiser. Uh, And so you go to to www.ethoslab.ca to learn more about our programming and also come to our first annual Innovation Summit. Um, happening at Emily Carr, where you'll be able to see uh, some of the young people showcased, as well as spotlighting Black leaders in innovation. Um, So that's a really great opportunity. And we've also invited 50 young people from across the region um, to a -a Blackathon on February the 17th, where they're going to be hacking innovations um, of Black history. So there are many different avenues in which people can get involved and learn more about it. And those are the two things that you can just jump into and come and learn more and join us to learn more about Ethos Lab. Well, why wouldn't we? Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Cindy.